0: We are here. We're here. This is the Baylor College of Medicine Resonance Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Eric Anderson. And I am another host, Brandon Garcia.
1: And I am, you guessed it, another host, Jennifer (laughs) (laughs) Deger.
0: Whoa. Wow. And we are the, as I said, the Baylor College of Medicine Resonance Podcast. And today we're going to be talking with Dr. Melanie Samuel about her work on neuronal mapping using the retina as a model system, as well as some of her work advocating for scientific research
1: yeah so i uh i gathered some information about her research in her lab um and one of the things that came to my mind was the saying or the question can you teach an old dog new tricks Uh so what do y'all think
2: People go to college all the time when yeah. they're in their, like, 40s and 50s yeah. and change career paths and things like that. So there's got to be some way to learn right. and generate new skill sets.
1: Yeah, otherwise we would stop learning when we were, you know, 20. And that would be really bad <laughs> <laughs> for medical yeah, it school. That's would be. <laughs> it's true. So I think the answer is yes, if those dogs are neurons. And Dr. Samuel's lab looks at that, how neurons choose new synaptic partners and how they wire up with each other you know why would they choose one neuron versus another neuron is kind of a big mystery right now so as eric said she's using a uh, mouse retina as the model to to look at that because the retina if you you know if you look at like one of those diagrams it has so many layers in it so it's it's a pretty uh, it's like an ogre
2: yeah <laughs> like like an ogre with the
1: onion yeah <laughs> or parfait she uh, of course when she looks at synaptic mapping Um, she's also looking at aging and why do we kind of, you know, you can, you can still learn into old age, but obviously it slows down a lot. So it's like, why does this happen? Why do our neurons kind of slow down a little bit the older that we get? And, uh, I also read a, an interesting paper, um, by Samuel et al that kind of explains or, uh, proposes a hypothesis for why our visual acuity might decline as we age aside from you know glaucoma and macular degeneration and all those things that in cataracts <laughs> plenty of things can go wrong but um she found that retinal neurons exhibited age-related quantitative alterations but their qualitative features were largely preserved which is interesting so quantitative alterations include like the areas of dendritic and axonal arbors so stuff that you can actually count and put a assign a number to and the qualitative features which were largely preserved were like the molecular identity and the laminar specificity of the neurons so it's pretty interesting when you think about how we age is not as simple as we might think
0: right. at least in the retina yeah well, and she also does some interesting work on, as, as I already said, of um, getting more scientific funding, kind of promoting that. Oh, yeah. Her, ad- that. her
2: advocacy work is very interesting. Um, just talking with her and talking with other scientists, there's definitely a movement of idea of that in order for science to become... Um, better funded and more of a forefront in society, scientists have to figure out a way to talk about it. And Dr. Samuel has definitely taken that to heart. Uh, She works with the Society for Neuroscience to do these things called Capitol Hill Days. Uh, And she'll talk about this in the episode, The Scope and Scale, but basically they try to do everything they can to help our representatives at Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. really get to know what scientific funding is. And they've had some success, some pretty good success that I... Uh, that she talks about that i'm really really impressed with and i just think it's a good idea and something that we need to understand as as listeners and people who are wanting to get into the sciences that talking to other people about science and helping them find a way to understand it is key to helping us move science forward
0: yeah and and she also had a pretty i think very important point that she made that for anybody going into research is that the writing aspect is incredibly important for that people you know myself included don't realize how much writing is a factor for doing becoming like a pi or you know doing any sort of scientific research and i think that's another important point that she makes
2: oh yeah i mean we can talk about it all day about how like Uh, television shows show scientists being all test tubes and lab (laughs) coats but really it's a lot a lot a lot a lot of writing yeah you have Um, to
1: constantly persuade people you have to persuade them to you know fund your research Mm -hmm. you have to persuade them to publish your paper and yeah to do that you need some pretty good rhetorical skills
0: yeah well and so that's a good lead-in um to our introduction and and our interview with dr samuel so Dr. Samuel received a bachelor's of science and um, art from the University of Idaho, uh, majoring in both biochemistry and microbiology as well as English. So on the back of that writing comment, it makes sense. She's got a strong background in, in English. And so she did her went on to do her PhD at the Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, Missouri, and she did her postdoctoral training um, at Harvard. And... So she's now here at Baylor College of Medicine and we're really excited to talk with her. So here's our interview with Dr. Samuel.
2: Dr. Samuel, thank you so much for being with us today and being on our podcast. Uh, Before we get started with some of the questions, do you mind telling us a little bit about yourself and how your research interests have evolved over time?
3: Sure, so first, uh, thanks very much for having me. I think this is really great and I'm really thrilled to be here. Uh, Let's see, so I started in research as an undergraduate, as many scientists. I grew up in Idaho actually, in the foothills uh, around Boise. So I went to the University of Idaho where I started research as a major in microbiology, and English actually, and uh, worked in a virology lab. I really became fascinated by how a virus that has as little as five proteins can make people sick. And so I studied that question uh, for a number of years, including how viruses evolve to cause disease, uh, first using a bacteriophage and then moving to human-centric viruses. So I carried that interest forward into graduate school. I went to the University of Washington in St. Louis, and I worked with a person named Mike Diamond who was really at the forefront of studying West Nile virus. You may remember that it was a virus that emerged in the US in the early 2000s. And so that was perfect timing for us because we were really interested in understanding how the virus could spread, how it could cause disease. And one of the unique features of West Nile virus and other uh, members of that family is that it can infect the nervous system. So I really got fascinated by the question of how viruses can have different tropism, uh, the ability to affect different neurons in the brain. And that was one of the key things that I studied as a graduate student and the different pathways that are involved in fighting off viruses in neurons. So then um, as I graduated, I had the choice to kind of stay in virology and stay in immunology or switch to neuroscience. And for a number of reasons that I'm happy to talk about, I decided to switch to neuroscience and really go and uh, try to understand the nervous system more fundamentally and get some training in that. So for my postdoc, uh, I worked with Josh Shanes at Harvard to study different aspects of neuron uh, survival in the context of disease and aging with the idea that at this phase of my career, I could kind of bring back those fundamental interests in immunology and virology and my now background in neuroscience.
1: Cool, so why, why did you switch? to neuroscience?
3: Yeah, so I think there were like three driving forces. One was that I felt with all of my training up to that point had been probably about 10 years that I'd been working in virology that I had a pretty good understanding of the way those types of experiments were done, but I didn't really understand the nervous system or really how to study it very well. So one was just to kind of increase my skill set and kind of develop a unique way of perhaps about thinking about uh, nervous system uh, infection and disease. And the other is that I feel that the nervous system is one of the last uh, remaining kind of biologic frontiers, right? I think if we understand a nervous system, we will finally understand ourselves and what makes us human. So it was partly kind of looking towards the future and thinking about what are the big unsolved problems that face us.
2: When you uh, when you made that jump, were you nervous? Like, how did you feel about that?
3: Yeah, it's always uh, a little scary when you switch fields. And I think that's, yeah, that's true for everybody. Um, on the other hand, there's a lot of power, I think, in, trying to get a diverse training set. And you do have to accept a lot of responsibility for obviously for coming up to speed in in a new field. Uh, But it's really fun and it exposes you to a whole other realm of science and people and ideas that, that I hadn't been exposed to before.
0: Did you get any pushback?
3: Yes and no. I mean, one of just as, as you guys are training in medical school, one of the things about sort of scientific training is that you learn how to think like a scientist, and it doesn't often matter so much exactly what problem you're focused on, but rather kind of developing the skills to understand how to think about it, identify important problems, and then go after them. So is, if you have sort of a training in that, although you need some background information, you can apply those tools to almost any, any field. Mm. And actually, a lot of people switch areas throughout their careers. It's not that uncommon.
2: Oh, okay. Yeah. I didn't. I didn't realize that. I kind of thought that. You get started right. in one field and you kind of stay there. You just have to pick yeah, one you when can. you're like 20. Yeah, <laughs> but you know, often
3: things, things change, right? The science may change. You may, you may think you're a neuroscientist and have a really cool discovery in liver that you just can't ignore. And you need to go, at, need to go after it. Yeah. So you have to be adaptable and flexible and the funding landscape changes and so sometimes you have to be responsive to that too.
1: Yeah.
3: Does your virology background help at all in neuroscience? Yeah, I think so. You know, um, there's practical ways. So often we use viruses as tools to Mm -hmm. visualize neurons, to see their structure by um, enabling them to express things like green fluorescent protein, and then you can light up the neuron Mm -hmm. and really see it and better understand it. But also kind of in thinking about um, how different neurons may become more resilient or susceptible to disease, that Mm -hmm. idea was planted in my mind through my work in virology.
2: Cool. Wow. That's <laughs> awesome. So you, uh, if I, correct me if I'm wrong, you do research looking at synaptic wiring and you use the retina as a model, correct?
3: hmm That's right. Yeah. Um,
2: what are the advantages and disadvantages of using uh, the, like that optical system for synaptic wiring in the brain?
3: Yeah. So one of the really interesting things about neuroscience is that we are still in our infancy in understanding how the brain works and what the fundamental units are that allow it to work. And those are neurons in their synapses. So in the retina, we have 50 plus years of research trying to understand what these neuron types are and how they're connected together. So we have a really solid base of information that we can work from. The brain is um, still in its early days of trying to understand that. So we really don't know very much about the individual neuron types that reside there and even less about the ways in which they wire up so that makes it really hard to study synaptic wiring questions if you don't understand sort of the fundamental organization because you can't tell if it's different or the mm-hmm. same and kind of different manipulations or disease states in the retina um, we have this understanding so it becomes a lot easier to tell if things are going wrong or going right the other advantage of it is that it's uh, laminated or layered kind of like a ham sandwich so there's neuron synapses neuron synapses and so because you have that ordering if instead of looking like a ham sandwich it starts to look like a bagel or so, <laughs> some other food group um, you under you know that something's wrong with it yeah. so there's kind of that basic organization that allows you to readily tell if things are okay and and have developed correctly or if things are not okay mm-hmm. so that's helpful too
1: how do you practically study the retina? It's so thin and delicate. I feel like it would be really challenging.
3: Yeah. So you develop fine motor skills. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's key. And you know, really, as a neural structure, having it be um, accessible through the eye is really helpful because yeah. the brain is protected by the skull. So when you're doing experiments, it can be quite hard to access and manipulate. Mm-hmm. And uh, the retina, because it's outside the skull but still part of the CNS, you can directly manipulate cells much more easily. Yeah. So that's quite helpful. Um, and having it be thin is actually an advantage because you can look all the way through it and see all the neurons and not, you're not um, as affected by kind of um, things that can diffuse the signal or make it hard to visualize deep into the brain, for example.
1: Okay, cool. Yeah. Still
3: sounds challenging.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Come to the lab. You're, yeah, you're like, you can help us dissect see now. it in real life. Yeah. <laughs> so um, our next question is: How does syn- synaptic wiring change in the brain over time? Mm
3: -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. So first of all, I think it's important to say that this is an area of active investigation. So we don't have all the answers. In fact, we have very few of the answers. What Mm -hmm. we do know is that in many types of neural diseases, including normal aging, disease-free aging, Mm -hmm. synapses are among the first structures to kind of become degraded as we get older. And that's because they're very uh, precisely ordered structures and very small and often very far from the cell body of the neuron. So it takes a lot of effort for the neuron to maintain them, and those are some of the reasons that we think they're susceptible. And so that's one of the reasons that we focused our work on synapses, because changes at those structures seem to be common among a lot of different types of neurologic diseases and neurologic insults.
1: Okay. Does your lab do specifically like Alzheimer's research or other neurodegenerative diseases? Yeah, so we
3: do. uh, We do both basic development, how do these cells know the partners to wire up with Mm -hmm. and make those decisions correctly during development, and then how do those connections go awry. And we have a various number of models that we use to study that. One is Alzheimer's, And we've also looked at other types of diseases, including epilepsy, et cetera. So we really think Mm -hmm. about the retina as a window into the brain Mm -hmm. and kind of an approachable part of the brain. Yeah.
1: So as we get older, do those connections kind of become more faulty or it gets harder to make those connections? Yeah,
3: so it's quite interesting. In some work I did uh, starting as a postdoc, what we found is that there were particular neurons and their synapses that were more susceptible to aging. So some neurons seem to be okay, and others undergo dramatic remodeling and kind of make synapses where they shouldn't be and Mm -hmm. lose other synapses. So we're very curious as to what protects some neurons and what makes other neurons susceptible. So that's an area of active investigation in the lab. Cool. Is there any regional
1: difference? Like, does our hippocampus degenerate faster or anything like that? Yes,
3: so in the brain, uh, there are certain areas that are more susceptible to disease, including things like the hippocampus. Mm -hmm. And one of the theories is that because that's an area involved in learning and memory, that it needs to be continually synaptically plastic. What that means is that it has to have the ability to change even in adulthood. So one of the theories is that that plasticity is what makes some of those areas more vulnerable in the retina, we see that photoreceptors, rods particularly, our night mm-hmm. vision cells are acutely susceptible to age-related changes. They don't die, but instead they undergo these synaptic remodeling events, at least in our animal models.
2: So, I'm sorry, you, you just said that like different parts of the brain are plastic, like different amounts of plastic mm-hmm. uh, plastic. Can you elaborate a little bit more on, on just on, the, on that aspect? I, just, I think that's kind of fascinating. It's not something I've heard a lot about. Mm.
3: Yeah, so I should say this is not my area of expertise, <laughs> but I'm happy <laughs> to, okay. to chat a bit about it. Uh, so the leading theory about memory and memory formation is that it involves structural changes to our neurons. So when you make a memory, you have to have something that physically changes in your brain to have that memory stay there and so that you can recall it. And it's thought that a lot of this encoding happens at the level of synapses, these connections between neurons. And that plasticity refers to the ability of a synapse to sort of change and remodel. So there is um, this idea that when we're young, we have this period called the critical period where we're really good at learning. And we can learn languages and, and kind of cram a bunch of information to our brains. But as we get older, that critical period ends and we become less able to kind of learn languages as well and things like that um, but we still have the ability in some parts of our brain to kind of encode memories and and learn in that way obviously because you guys are a medical school you are adults but you have to still learn a lot of information um, so there are certain parts of the brain that participate in that and one of them is the hippocampus
0: oh wow thank you so it sounds like barring disease though uh our brains will keep remodeling throughout our life is that true
3: Uh, So, you know, again, this is an area of active investigation, so we're still trying to figure out what parts of our brain are really plastic. Mm. There are um, certainly uh, evidence for some level of new neurons born in adults, in particular regions of the Mm. brain in our our animal models. Uh, And there is, of course, evidence for the ability to form memories, but whether or not um, particular subsets of neurons in different parts of the brain can remain synaptically plastic i think we don't know so in the system that we study i've been surprised that neurons that we thought kind of that had made their final synaptic wiring choice if you manipulate them in particular ways they actually can become plastic again so i'm hopeful that as we understand uh, factors that control neuron stability versus neuron flexibility that we may be able to manipulate them in precise ways to repair the nervous system when we need to. Hmm.
0: Well, So I wonder then, because uh, you hear a lot, like if you read a magazine, there's a lot of like buzz articles about keep your brain healthy and whatnot. Yeah, um, luminosity.
2: or these Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> brain exactly. Stuff like that.
1: Cross- crossword puzzles. Do you know,
0: I mean, there's such an array that we should probably pick one, but I don't know if <laughs> there's a... Uh, there's actually any mechanisms that are known to actually quote keep your brain healthy or is it all just a marketing yeah (laughs) gamut
3: right so there are very few good controlled studies about the effectiveness of these things however it's never a bad idea to continue to be engaged and mentally mentally active as throughout our life i think that's pretty clear that People that continue to work or be mentally actively engaged, even as they grow older, tend to have a higher cognitive function for longer periods of time. Um, but the mechanisms and whether these apps help, I think we don't really know. <laughs> yeah, I understand. <laughs> so do you think people can change?
1: I know that's more of a philosophical question, but <laughs> given your work with how synaptic wiring changes and if that makes up, you know someone's soul mm-hmm. we just wanted to know what you think about, about yeah that well this is very <laughs> philosophical <laughs> yeah
3: um let's see i think people uh change in the sense of perhaps an onion that maybe they yeah. reveal <laughs> more layers of their personality mm-hmm. that were maybe there a little bit from the beginning yeah. and certainly people can change in the sense of maybe variations on a theme like a musical composition it will change a little mm-hmm. bit and you'll have a few new notes here and there but the same kind of uh, tune probably yeah. will still be present um, and I've observed that too in mentoring lots of students that sort of <laughs> this, the student that walks in the door is is the is the person that is there and they will learn and they will grow but that fundamental personality traits are kind of Yeah. (laughs) They're they're (laughs) They're set in place. Yeah, exactly. From an early age. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So maybe not necessarily you can teach an old dog new tricks, but you can help him with the ones he's already learned.
3: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Or strengthen certain ones that are there but maybe haven't been brought to the forefront. I think we all have innate capabilities that maybe we are untapped just by virtue of our Mm -hmm. the way we've what we've been exposed to and what we've chosen to do with our lives.
2: That's awesome. So we wanna switch gears a little bit and talk a little bit about um, your work in advocacy and outreach in terms of like scientific funding and, and things like that. Um, first of all, what made you want to take an active role in science policy and in, in uh, scientific funding?
3: Yeah, this is a really important question, so I'm glad you asked it. Um, I feel that as scientists, it's our job to make sure that the general public knows what it is that we do every day and why it's so important. If you think about back to the 1600s and times before there were things like antibiotics, what world we lived in and how different it is from all of the medical uh, tools and techniques we have at our disposal, all of that was made possible through science and through discovery. And I think sometimes we take a lot of that for granted. We forget (laughs) forget how lucky we are and how far Mm -hmm. we've come. And it's scientists and doctors that have brought us there. So it's really important that we communicate that. And I think often as scientists, we don't do a good job. We kind of get excited about these details of our work and we forget that, uh, that those aren't immediately obvious to the general public. And so I really have um, kind of embraced that idea and taken it to heart and I do whatever I can, things like this and other things to help spread, um, spread the word about what science and medicine are capable of. In terms of science funding, of course, nothing can happen without money, and this is particularly true of research because um, it requires a ton of infrastructure, a ton of uh, equipment, expensive equipment to even be able to attempt these studies, and um, all of that is funded through the government primarily, although there are some small foundations that help as well. And so it's our tax dollars at work in funding these (coughs) studies through a competitive grant process that we go through. We submit, we write grants. Those are our ideas about science, hypotheses, and experiments to test them. Those get sent to review panels in the federal government that are composed of peers, other scientists. They get scored, and then the top 5% usually, or maybe 10%, get money, and the other 90% don't. So it's extremely competitive. Then, that money comes to the lab and they use it to accomplish the aims of the grant. If there is no money for science, then grants don't get funded and the work simply just doesn't get done. So as a percentage of the budget, the money that goes to what's called uh, the National Institutes of Health and the National Science Foundation is a very small part, part of the pie. Um, but it's often one that um, Congress may go to 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 kind of carve things out of. And so Mm -hmm. it's really important that scientists are there on Capitol Hill to say, oh no wait, remember this money (laughs) is really important, otherwise we won't be able to make these discoveries that have helped increase our our lifespan in the last century. So I routinely go to Capitol Hill to um, advocate for science funding with our Congress people and our senators. And generally, people are really um, receptive. I mean, this is something we can all get behind. It's a nonpartisan issue. I think we all have family members that have been affected by various diseases, and we've seen the kind of impact those can have, and we've also seen the impact of effective medicine and effective understanding of the way these pathways work. So um, thankfully, in the last few years, science funding has been maintained and has gone up a bit. Um, and these are highly coordinated efforts. So we all go in asking for the same budgetary increase, and we um, have a plan about how, what money is needed to continue to to, to fund um, to fund the research.
2: I do want to know. We, we've talked a lot about this. Um, what what do you think we can do as as students, either graduate students, medical students, you know, of the of the like, anyone who's curious about getting into this field? What can we do to help? Um, improve awareness and understanding of science?
3: Yeah, that's a great question. So I want to say a couple of things. One, for those um, listeners who are interested in thinking about science as a career and are um, concerned about this issue of science funding, first of all, I'd be happy to chat with anybody one-on-one about this. The second thing is what really makes a difference is your ability to write. (laughs) So for students out there who are thinking about going into science and, and really wanting to do research. You're going to need to be able to write well, so I would encourage you to hone those skills now. Practice early and often. Take writing courses. Hug your English teachers. Like I think that's yeah. all. That's yes, all says really the important. Yes, English major, right? Yeah. yeah. I think mean, it's true. I thank them every day. Right? I mean, yeah. they really made a big impact on on my career as a scientist okay to get to your other question uh about what about what students can do to raise awareness there are a couple really really practical things one is to get involved in science policy uh, advocacy and outreach at baylor we have a student-led science policy group that's really strong and they have initiatives they invite congress people and senators to come to baylor and tour they uh, have advocacy um, efforts to contact senators with particular messages and all those things are really effective if you if your senator or congressperson hears from you that you care about science that makes a difference and that's something we all can do as constituents is write emails show up in people's offices um, you know just give them the message that science is important and we need their support of it so we all as citizens have the ability to do that. In terms of particular things, um, uh, in addition to that, different societies have policy um, outreach and policy groups. So I work a lot with the Society for Neuroscience. I'm the local advocacy leader for that society here in the Houston area. And that's composed of, um, I think in our annual meeting, we have over 25,000 neuroscientists. So it's a large group of people with a big voice that coordinates Capitol Hill days. So we actually go to Washington DC twice a year at a particular time and they arrange meetings and we go shake hands with the Congress people and senators talk about what we we want to ask them to fund specifically and give our personal stories. So you can do anything from sending an email to actually going to Washington DC to kind of personally advocate for science and all those things are really powerful but also super fun. Like I think it's important to say that, you know, it's not just a a thing we do because we we feel like we should but it's actually really Mm -hmm. cool and you get to go and see how government works and so that's That's really neat.
2: Oh yeah, I would love to go (laughs) shake hands with a congressman, a a senator or two. I was That's
1: curious, a, what, what yeah. does that actually look like? Do you go into the Capitol and meet with them or yep. do they set up like conference rooms? Yes, so
3: the, the Society for Neuroscience has a dedicated staff that are um, involved in science policy and they prearrange all of these meetings. It's over 200 oh. meetings with different congresspeople and senators from representatives all over the country. And then- Scheduling si- nightmare. Yes, <laughs> yeah. scientists fly in from all the different states yeah. and we have delegations from different parts of the country so I was in the Texas delegation and we went to the Texas um, Congress people and senators oh. that were available and met with them and then sometimes I'd be in Ohio but that's okay and you know we just <laughs> kind of bounce yeah. around and fill our day with these meetings so it's it's a good way to kind of put a face and a story behind behind science Right? yeah are they usually pretty receptive
1: the- congressmen
3: and women that you've met generally yes generally again it's it's one of those things that you know we all have families and we all have people that we love and we all want them to be healthy and so it's it's um, something I think almost everybody can get behind have you seen any
1: changes as a result of your work in the Capitol?
3: Yes, so we've had really um, good success in the past couple of years of getting the budget initiatives. I think a $2 billion increase in the NIH budget is what we targeted last year, and that was passed, and we're advocating for the same thing this year. And so we had a period not that long ago where science funding fell flat, and because of inflation, basically it was on a downward track, and now we're almost back up to where we were (laughs) and starting to grow, so that's super exciting.
2: That's awesome. Um, is there anything you would change about the process of getting funding or, or how scientists get money or how it's allocated in the government?
3: Yeah, um, I mean, I think we all would have things we wish were a bit different. Um, on the other hand, I think overall the process works really well. It's very fair overall. Um, your, co- your colleagues are quite good at evaluating work. Um, One thing I think is really fun to think about are some new initiatives that aim to fund maybe the scientist rather than the project. So the idea that if you you can identify people that are creative and motivated and skilled, that maybe it doesn't matter so much if they're going to do a particular aim on Alzheimer's or if instead they're going to tweak that aim and focus on epilepsy and kind of let them have some um, control over what particular, to be able Mm -hmm. to follow the science, what particular things they apply the money to. So there are a few initiatives like this. I think they're very powerful because you get to fund more innovative, discovery-driven work than is sometimes funded by some more traditional grant mechanism. So I think seeing more things like that would be really fun and helpful. Mm
2: -hmm. Um, You've given us a lot of great advice today. Is there anything else that you would like to like our listeners to know, any, any, passing words of advice you'd like to give us to make sure that as we move forward in our careers as, as physicians and scientists uh, things that we should be aware of or thoughts that we should have
3: yeah i think one thing that's really important is to identify what drives you and gives you energy and that you're passionate about because often we get into doing things because maybe our parents thought it was a good idea or because we thought it was the next thing to do we didn't you know higher education seems great that's good and uh, but but we i I think our motivation for doing these things really needs to be internal and we need to uh, identify within ourselves what is it about that career or that job that um, motivates you to show up every day because that's what's going to make the job fun and it's what's going to get you through challenges that we're all that we all encounter and so I really encourage my trainees to think about that question early in their training and identify that for themselves and write it down and hold on to it. And then when you have that day where you're just like, I'm not sure I can do this anymore, pull it out, remind yourself why you're here, and then you'll be able to kind of move forward with kind of a sense of, um, a sense of internal motivation and I think really a sense of happiness. And then if it stops being fun, then think about other things you might be able to do. I think we only have one life. So we need to be doing things that, that we love. We have the often the gift in this country of, of making that choice, and so we should pursue it.
2: Well, thank you so much. Again, we really greatly appreciate you coming out and being on the podcast.
3: Yeah, thank you. This has been really fun. I appreciate yeah, it. Thank thanks. you. <laughs> thanks.
0: All right. That is it for now. We would like to thank everyone out there who took the time to listen to this episode of the podcast. Special thanks to Jennifer and Brandon for writing the episode. Thank you to our faculty advisor, Dr. Poitras, for helping us put everything together. Thank you to the Baylor Communications Department for help with the production and website. And thank you again to Dr. Samuel for taking the time to be interviewed by us. We hope everyone enjoyed it, and we hope you tune in again soon. Goodbye for now.